everybody um quick little thing we have a full jam-packed episode that now feels weirdly prescient but nick um the fbi has raided mar-a-lago go figure i guess they were uh, they had some time on their hands jared <laughs> i guess so <laughs> Um, so we're we're still unpacking this the same as you, but we felt like this was pertinent that we needed to go over it very quickly before we got into the episode. Um, it's really weird how much this ties into the episode people are getting ready to listen to. Uh, Trump eating documents, misplacing documents, uh, being unprofessional in general. It seems like this is related to the fact that everyone and their brother knows that he has mishandled confidential documents and uh, resources. Um, on top of that, Nick, the announcement that came from Trump himself is, uh, I, I don't know how else to put it. It's hilarious. It's really funny. Beautiful home. You know, it's, it is a beautiful home. I got to tell you, it keeps it nice. Uh, I, I don't believe if you were to pull the boards apart that you'd find any kind of um, pushback or any kind of words that would indicate that he is not guilty. Uh, interestingly enough, he didn't mention anything about his, his innocence. No, he, he did not. Um, you know, he, he talked a little bit about it being, I, th this is great. It was not necessary or appropriate. Well, we'll leave that to the authorities to decide. Um, he also said, and this is great. This is a quote. It is prosecutorial misconduct, which I guarantee you that Donald Trump did not write that. Okay, probably. That's too many syllables. The weaponization of the justice system, an attack by radical left Democrats who desperately don't want me to run for president in 2024. I got to tell you, Donald, they're not the only ones who don't want you to run because <laughs> I have to tell you, for the FBI to raid the home of a former president, like there's a lot of boxes that have to be checked here. Yeah. A lot. A lot of Gestapo words being thrown around to describe this on the, on the right. Uh, remind me, who appointed the head of the FBI? Who oh, was that again? I, I, I have no memory of that whatsoever. Just checking to make sure that that, well, that was a, a Republican appointee, I believe, uh, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, it's so incredible. Over on Fox News, this is an actual headline that I just caught. Um, Two-tiered system of justice. Trump raided while Hunter Biden's still not charged. <laughs> I love it. It's terrible. And by the way, everything that we talked about from the mishandling of documents and to give people a preview, we got to talk about uh, on this episode, the IRS getting $80 billion to grow and go after corporate criminals and Marco Rubio being a complete Republican stooge and ass. This is an actual tweet from Rubio. Quote, after today's raid on Mar-a-Lago, what do you think the left plans to use those 87,000 new IRS agents for? Jeez, uh, that I don't know, man. Maybe just to run the IRS. <laughs> Jeez, here here's interesting. Wall Street Journal was the one I, who I kind of seemed to be the out front of this as far as reporting in terms of why they did this, why they're going there, and they seem to think that's related to all the um, documents they had taken from the White House that were um, uh, what's we call it, top secret or whatever that they needed. You know, they're not supposed to do that. Now, remember, boxes and boxes have been shipped back after they yep. nicely requested them months ago. Um, now, the thing with the, uh, and, and by the way, we've talked about this before, how there's a lot of these laws, quote unquote, that are like, hey, you should really do this. Like, keep all your call logs and keep all your presidential papers. Don't eat them. Don't flush them. But there really isn't any. Is no, that in the statute? Does sure. it say don't eat them, don't flush them? You know, mutilation, concealment, flushing, and they're all, they're all just uh, synonyms. Now, um, the thing, though, is there wasn't a lot of teeth to what would happen if you violated these laws. However, 
Um, as Mark Elias had to point out on Twitter, I just found this one out. One of the things that is seems ironclad and in stone would be that um, you would forfeit your office and be disqualified from holding any office under the United States. So this could very well be, you know, Merrick Garland saying, oh, my God, like almost in the sense that remember when DOJ went after um, uh, Spear Wagner first because how corrupt he was. Well, they knew that Nixon was also going to need to get out of there to how, how corrupt he was. But they needed to get him out first because of the order of command. This could very well be one of those things where it's like the pragmatic approach is we have to make sure this guy cannot run again. And this is a slam dunk case to say they stole these documents. They're in his possession and he can't run anymore. Well, that's it. I am still very allergic to silver bullet solutions. You know what I mean? The idea that this gets them or the walls are closed in or whatever. Right. This to me feels like another episode in a much longer series of episodes. Like this is another thing that's like, hey, guess what? We've got your number and we have no interest whatsoever in having you involved in any of this. Sending signals basically saying, you know what? The amount of crimes that you have committed the amount of laws that you have broken. And, 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 and I mean, like, let's be real. We've talked about this on the podcast. Donald Trump has behaved as a criminal organization boss his entire career before he was ever president of the United States, before he ever dreamed of being president of the United States. He has acted as an organized crime boss. These things, and, and you keep saying it too, it's the Al Capone idea. It's 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 the taxes that'll get you. It's the it's the side thing that will get you. And I think Spiro Agnew is a wonderful person to bring up as a corollary here, which was they basically went to Spiro and they were like, hey, we just need you to know that you could go away for a very long time and you really need to think about what you've done and what is possible here. And with Donald Trump, it's very obvious the system does not want him around period. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't think we're going to see him do a perp walk in the next day. I'm not sitting here setting off streamers and poppers and you name it. But this is a, this is pretty large, Nick. The idea that the FBI would raid the home of a former president, that is, that's historic. Right. And, and you have to think to go in there, first of all, you have to get a court order to go in and look through a safe. And I love, by the way, that his statement's like, they even went in my, state, my safe. It's like, okay, man. Like, to go in there, you have to have this thing pretty much nailed dead to rights. Right. It's 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 a real situation. But again, don't think you're going to be seeing him perp walked in the next day or two. But this is... This is a larger compounding problem for Donald John Trump. Yeah. I mean, I'm trying to rack my brains about what else they they could be looking for that would be like there that's so pressing. Because remember, it's not only that they have to prove um, that there's evidence they need to retrieve. They need yep. to prove that it's there like right now. Otherwise, yep. a judge wouldn't have signed off. And I totally I'm sympathetic with Merrick Garland, believe it or not. Because it's a difficult situation to be in when you don't want to be seen as political or as the Gestapo, as they're saying. So, like what you just said is, is spot on. They couldn't 
they couldn't have even thought they couldn't have, a thought couldn't have entered their mind of getting this um, this warrant without like the most ironclad one hundred percent knowing what you're going to find there. This is not a go in and see what's there situation. No, well, this is not um, bad lieutenant or whatever. <laughs> what's another one of those? What's the movie where they always it's bad see lieutenant colon Mar-a-Lago? <laughs> that that's not a movie I want to watch. I'll be honest. No. Oh, thank you, but uh, but you know, or some other movie where they're always you know they're pushing the envelope here on what's legal, what's not to get a case, you know, with the bad guys. But nonetheless, um, yeah. So it's, so I don't I don't I'm not worried about Merrick Garland at all being caught in some situation where they're going to end up perp walking him because it was a political you know hit job. This is definitely something that has to be <laughs> completely lined up. But I I just asked somebody I know who I work with. Uh, you know, it's like 25. I'm like, do you realize how unprecedented this is that a former president's oh. house is getting raided? And he was just like, well, listen, the whole thing has been unprecedented. So, so yeah, it kind of feels like, why not? <laughs> why not that this? Well, and, you know, everybody, the immediate reaction on the right, obviously, is they're all like, this is banana republic behavior. Well, yeah, if you went after somebody and there wasn't something to go after them for. If it was literally a regime going after political enemies – that's not what this is. And everything we know about Merrick Garland, and, and I think you're right, everything we know about Merrick Garland is a tale of caution, mm -hmm. right? It's always institution. It's always playing by the numbers, all of this. This situation had to be 100%. You know exactly what you're going for. You know exactly where it is. You know exactly that you're going to find it. None of this was left to air, pure. Nothing. Absolutely none of this was left to, to human error or, or fault or anything. Like this had to be dead to rights. Um, and again, I, I don't think it's going to lead to a perp walk tomorrow. I think everybody needs to curb their expectations and just be patient on this thing. But this is like unprecedented just barely begins to cover it. This yeah. is pretty So, but, but you don't think it's just uh, for illegal possession of uh, classified documents? That's what I would guess this is. Okay. Yes. And and I think that this I mean everybody and everybody and their brother knew that he took documents that he wasn't supposed to take. I mean they they at least have multiple things set in place to make sure that everything is kept there, yeah. you know. I mean, like redundancy upon redundancy. They know that he has taken things that he wasn't supposed to take. And I have to imagine it's like okay, they asked for them back and they sent a bunch of boxes, but then they didn't send them all. So they're going to sure. be able to say to a judge, whatever, hey, we gave him plenty of opportunities to return this. Maybe we asked him like several times and they refused to cooperate. So we were forced to do this. And as a result, we you know have to invoke uh, 18 USC, whatever that number is. And uh, 18 U.S. Code 2071, uh, concealment, removal or mutilation generally of those documents. So. Um, I'll take it. I'll take it. Whatever they, whatever they want to do to Al Capone, this guy uh, is fine with me. But I, gosh, how sweet would it be that they could actually get him on all the other shit too? I, if I had to make a long-term prediction, this is what I've said all along. It's that you put a lot of heat on this guy, and then later on you look back and you're like, man, what an embarrassment. We got past that. Um, I, <laughs> I got to tell you again, just to restate it, they really do not want him to run for president again. <laughs> <laughs> like it is just it is obvious that 
the powers that be in this country are tired of Donald Trump's shit and they don't want anything to do with it. And on that note, by the way, enjoy the rest of the podcast where we talk about him trying to flush documents and Marco Rubio pushing anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. But yeah, uh, I, I will, we'll sit back and see what happens, I guess. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Muckrake Podcast. I'm Jared Yates Sexton. I'm here, as always, with Nick Houselman. How you doing, buddy? I'm, I'm back from the grave and I'm ready to party. <laughs> I believe is the tagline for that movie. Uh, listen, COVID, eh, big deal. What was COVID all about? Jeez. It just killed a million people. That is true. But thank God for vaccines. Thank God for this new variant, which I think is not. I mean, you have to remember, people were having like violent hallucinations uh, amongst oh. uh, as part of these, uh, the reaction in the very beginning. And then obviously they couldn't breathe. Uh, this seems to be a different version anyway. And uh, thank God we have vaccines is all I can tell you. Uh, absolutely. And we, uh, we're we going to get going here in a minute. We're going to have a, a, an interview with Gal Beckerman, who is the senior editor for books at The Atlantic and the author of The Quiet Before and On the Unexpected Origins of Radical Ideas. I cannot recommend this interview and this book enough, especially for anybody who wants to think about how the world can change and the role that they can play in it. But Nick, unfortunately, the first thing that we have to talk about Presidents flushing their records down the toilet. Well, isn't that you know what how it's supposed to go? Like, where else are you going to put those? I listen. I, I got to tell you, we're not going to spend a lot of time on this, but we have to talk about the fact that a president of the United States of America, Donald John Trump. <laughs> uh, yeah, That's keep going. Terrible. <laughs> That's really terrible. That's awful. Literally was flushing records down the toilet, which we've heard about for a while. There are now pictures. On top of that, this, um, and we've talked about this for a while, the January 6th commission and the Republican Party are coming after Trump hardcore to try and keep him from running for president. They are ready to move beyond him. We've seen this. We're now hearing that he was telling American generals he wishes that they were more like Nazi generals. I mean, it is uh, it's open season, man. Yeah. Well, you know, I think the best thing to take away from all that is or the toilet gate would be that uh, a story comes out. It doesn't sound that far fetched considering the source or considering who we're talking about. Uh, Total denials, lies, whatever. Everyone says, oh, yeah, fake news, fake news. And then they have pictures. They have proof that this actually happened. Um, I, I would have to imagine so much of what has been reported is true, A, because it just sounds right. It doesn't sound far-fetched. And then B, like the receipts come out eventually. And uh, this is where we're at. I mean, you know, they're, they're publishing pictures of what is clearly Trump's handwriting on a piece of paper, talking about Lee Stefanik uh, or flushing her down the toilet. Um, who knows? Maybe these things are, are just worthless, you know, not worth keeping. But remember, it is a, they are breaking the law because you're not supposed to do any of that to any kind of presidential papers. And he was notorious for ripping them up. I think they said he was eating them at some point, right? I mean, I don't know who knows what that's about. But nonetheless, um, it just seems that, you know, there's evidence. Paul Manafort comes down and says, yeah, I gave Clem Nick all of our polling data. I did. You know, I need, I need I was looking for a job afterwards. What's wrong with that, right? I want to point out, by the way, that this barely like rose to the level of public discourse that Paul Manafort, the head of Trump's campaign, for years we were talking about the possibility that he was handing over sensitive information to the Russians. And today he comes out and says, yeah, I did it for the money. Are you kidding me? This wasn't about sabotage. This wasn't, this wasn't about betraying the country. It was for money. It's like, congratulations, everybody. I'm glad we can pay attention to this stuff. You know, it was, but it was old polling data, Jared. It wasn't really, you know, some of it was public, some of it was, you know, just our private stuff, but it was, you know, like a month old. 
um, yeah, it's um, whatever we're hearing. It's worthy of just saying, probably just sort of taking it as fact until, you know, we get evidence that it's not. Listen, whenever I'm getting ready to carry out some sort of a, a collusion type action, I'm getting ready to hand over sensitive data to another country in order to interfere in an election. What I always like to do, Nick, is I just like to say very loud, this isn't about treason. <laughs> this, <laughs> this isn't about subverting democracy. This is about business, first right. and foremost, which, by the way, it's important to remember, and we're going to talk about this a little bit more, for a lot of these people involved in a lot of these things, the way that they sleep at night and the way that they go ahead and justify it is they literally make up a story for themselves, which is, oh, I'm not really doing anything wrong here. Like, yeah, I'm going to get, you know, a little bit of money here and maybe I'll do a little bit of harm here. But technically, I'm, 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 I'm on the up and up. That's right. what's happening. And that's what happens when we talked about this before, when you have young people coming in to work at the White House and inexperienced and unqualified because they couldn't get real qualified people to work for this White House. That This is what they know. And, you know, I, I had written a screenplay once about the, um, the college basketball scandal 1950. And what you realize in studying that was all these kids that were going to college, um, which will actually tie in nicely with a, um, a interview we're going to do next week, um, is they get to college knowing they're on the take. They're going to, you know, throw games. That was what everyone was doing for decades it was like how it was done and so they've now established that in a way that that might be hard to undo whereas i would like to think the hallowed halls of the white house were protected by a lot of this illegal activity in the past because people believed in it and thought this was important not to engage in these things you you kind of we did bury the lead though because i can't believe we're going to let the german generals and the nazi generals request of, of trump go without saying a couple more sentences about it, because I think that that's worth exploring for even a minute. What do you think? No, it absolutely is. And and one of the things that keeps coming about, and I, I've said this constantly about Donald Trump, like really intellectually, like there's not really a base there. You know what I mean? Like as this is leaving Donald Trump's mouth, I assume his brain is not thinking, hey, you're endorsing Nazism and the Nazi blitzkrieg war machine. But one of the things is he recognizes authoritarianism. He recognizes the way that it works. And we've heard for years that he has an obsession with Nazis. The possibility that the only book he's ever read is Mein Kampf or, you know, constantly keeps these Nazi World War II books around. A person like Trump looks at that, again, sort of divorces the idea of moral, ethical, human evil, and instead thinks to himself, those are some people who got things done. And if you remember, in the, in the lead up to 2016, him winning the election, he was giving speeches, I saw them personally, where he was advocating for American troops to carry out war crimes. Right. Was saying we need to go back to that. We need to go back to just senseless slaughter and persecution and oppression and religious uh, uh, terrorism. Literally what this man has advocated the entire time, although again, to sleep at night, I have to assume he just thinks this is what gets things done. Yeah, I mean, I suppose, because, okay, if, if his adult brain only has a limited amount of information historically that he's amassed and being Mein Kampf probably being one of the only few. So I suppose, yeah, the default would be, yes, those generals, without actually taking the next thought of, wait a minute, those generals were, were carrying out the Holocaust. Like, we don't want that. I don't know, though. I'm not too sold on that exactly, because we were talking about in the context of, like, Millie um, dealing with being, uh, getting orders, like, can't we just shoot these protesters in the leg? You know, not kill him, just shoot him a little bit. Um, you know, those are the things that he was saying out loud. 
Um, this it, it's such a problem. I mean, you know, I think we're going to ultimately look at the Lafayette Square, uh, you know, clearing of that and taking the picture in front of the the church. I think that that's unfortunately dimming or going away in our public consciousness in a yes. way that that is a moment that should be remembered um, as a uh, a dark stain uh, on his presidency. Yep. I suppose if you flood enough of the zone with shit, then you, things get through the cracks. Uh, but that was it, and that—that's what a lot of the reporting that Maggie Haberman, a friend of the friend of the pod, is she a friend of the pod? I don't even know what she is anymore. But no, we can't even make that joke. No, not really. Yeah, I know. But but either way, what she's reporting on this it seems to center around all of that that time frame and what um, what that means, what that meant for the, the use of the military, it, it, you know, and and how that could have easily become a uh, fascistic uh, governmental control over that. So, uh, just v- very concerning. It's it's all problematic. I and, and again, like to think about the way that people do this stuff. Like the way that they, you know, nobody wakes up in the morning and is like, I'm going to do bad today. You know, as they twirl their their little mustache and they tie someone to the railroad tracks. Like the even even the Nazis thought they were the good guys and everything that they were doing. It just so happens that they created a story for themselves in which they were, you know, being attacked by this completely bullshit anti-semitic conspiracy theory which by the way we're gonna have to talk about more because of course we have to talk about that in modern politics uh and 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 on that note we have to get into the big news or in uh president joe biden's words a big effing deal um (laughs) so we we watched the 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 passage through the senate uh, in a marathon voterama uh we watched the inflation reduction act make its way through the hallowed halls of, of the Capitol. And what has happened is that the Democratic Party uh, managed to come together after Joe Manchin was, of course, visited by the, the ghost of Christmas past, Larry Summers, and basically told not to meddle with the forces of the universe anymore. And of course, Kristen Sinema got on for reasons that we'll uh, investigate in just a minute. A $370 billion bill passed the Senate. Uh, the vote was 51 to 50 with Vice President Kamala Harris uh, casting the tie-breaking vote. Uh, this bill, of course, invests in clean energy, except for, of course, uh, Joe Manchin's uh, pipelines. And on top of that, a lot of acres of new drilling. Uh, this bill will supposedly cut emissions. It'll lead to tax credits and incentives for uh, electric vehicles and clean energy. Medicare is going to have the ability to negotiate prescription drug prices. It strengthened the ACA, the Affordable Care Act, uh, and also uh, invested $80 billion in the IRS, which we have to talk about in just a second, in order to go after corporate taxes, in order to fund this and other things. It's a big bill. It's not perfect. There are big, giant problems that we can talk about, and of course we will, but it actually is a really, really big deal. Really big deal, yes. Uh, I love the Votorama uh, way they had to do this, too, because, you know, like January 6th Commission, they're taking a lot of micro content and, and they're publishing it on, on the, uh, in the uh, social media. So now we get these little sound bites from Cipollone and all these people. It's very damaging. I think it really, really helped. Well, the Votorama acts the same way because now they can make a big deal about Republicans voting against something like insulin caps for pri- people who have private insurance. Brilliant. Love it. And it's built into the system where they kind of had to do it, then stay up all night and do this all the way through for each line item that they needed to vote up and down. Um, you know, they couldn't get 60 votes uh, for, for, for the insulin cap on for, for private insured people. Um, that's a wonderful political um, football they have now to toss around going into the midterms. Yeah, it is. And we'll talk more about the insulin situation because, uh, man, there there's some really insidious stuff taking place there. 
for to look at this bill. And, you know, we had talked about this in the, the last couple of episodes. There, there's a lot happening here right now at this moment. Like what we've been really exposing on this podcast and really delving deep into is that we're on the precipice of something different. Right. Things are changing. A lot of people want to pretend like they're not. There's going to be a new regime, if you want to call it that. There's going to be a new order of some type. Eventually, at some point, American, the American political system had to do something about climate change one way or another. And we talked about this in depth. Even the, the energy companies understand at some point or another, you have to make the jump from fossil fuel into cleaner alternatives. There has to be a change. Of course, these corporations have known for decades, some of them for 70 years, that they were causing global climate change. Now, all of a sudden, the check is coming due. And it's one of those things where, of course, you have a lot of people in a lot of rooms who are making decisions about when you can make that shift. Right now, this has passed because eventually the American political system had to do something. Something had to shift one way or another. What we do see here is a large picture of where we are as a country. And, 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 and basically what all these factors are in place. The Democratic Party here, look at what they've done. What did they invest in? Tax credits, tax incentives, right? Mm -hmm. That's basically what the system is willing to do at this point, is to try and move the energy markets in that direction and move innovation in that direction. That's massive. Do I wish it was different? Absolutely, I do. Do I wish it was just a massive investment or maybe even a nationalization of all of these things? Absolutely, I do. But this is where the Democratic Party is now. And we'll talk about what, what all we saw in these votes. But what did we see from the Republican Party? They have no political incentive whatsoever to even admit there's a problem. Because the Republican Party, as of right now, represents a very, very slim minority, a historically unpopular group of people who have no interest in carrying out representative government. They have no interest in actually carrying out anything that makes people's lives better, addressing any sort of crises. And what are they there for, Nick? They're there to pass tax cuts for the wealthy, run up deficits, and create just an absolute logjam for everything else. And that's that's your snapshot of where we are at this moment. But in their defense, they believe that that's going to make it better for everybody. I mean, I think that's the crux of the matter here. It depends on who we're talking about. I think there are some true believers who do believe that'll make the country better, and there are others who are just like, no, I, I don't want the government to do anything, and I don't want the government to have any power. Right. I mean, and it's certainly a powerful argument. Like, I don't want people, gay people to get married. That's going to make our country better if they can't. Like, that is a thing that, that they can run on and it, that is a story you know, that they can tell i don't want yes. babies murdered we can't have that that, that makes our, our countries better when we refuse to give you know women health care like that's that's what this falls under it's really scary I, I did want to address the um the drilling part that you mentioned with um with, with what mansion was able to get out of this here's the thing i i had lived my uh, before i live where i live now uh three or four doors down from an oil well believe it or not in los angeles and um they it was it was an active well but they hadn't done any new drilling for a while. And I, we just moved there. They, the company had applied for a permit to begin 24-7 drilling for like three or four or six months. And because once you start, you got to go, you can't stop. So it's like in the middle of the night, whatever. The people that lived in that neighborhood was de described trucks all night long, loud, pollution, drilling, shaking, the whole thing. So we fought this, right? We fought it for a year and a half. And, and of course... They get the permit anyway because they're all bought and sold, all the all the um, congressmen and the, the councilmen around here. But guess what happens? This is around the time when the price of oil plummets, and they never ended up using the permit. They didn't drill, 
And so it's quite possible that this is the kind of thing that happens again in these other things where they uh, they open up things, they allow more uh, permits to be drilled, and then when the price goes below a certain uh, level, it's it's not worth it for them to actually look for more oil. Very possible that if we move into those situations more and more, that that's what's going to happen. They're probably what they're banking on, so we can get closer towards you know this the, the new deal, the green new deal, faster. Yeah, let's let's be honest on what happened here is what we basically said for a while was going to move Joe Manchin, the possibility of what was ever going to make him get into anything, which was you have to grease the gears. It wasn't and dirty in pictures? all of this. It wasn't dirty pictures of him somewhere. No, oh. no. What he wanted was he wanted more pipeline and he wanted a lot more drilling permits. Yeah. And basically in all of this and, and, and to be very clear, the moment that we're facing. And, and, and again, like I'm, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that this is a slam dunk because is it a giant bill? Yes, it is. And thank God they did something. Congratulations on that. I actually say very, very well done. I'm glad something got passed. But I, I'm, I'm telling you, in order to make this giant leap, you, you either pay off the energy yeah. sector and you're basically like, hey, I understand that this isn't great for you here. Basically, now you're in charge of new clean energy. You've now made the leap. You've made the change. You're now part of the solution. You either do that or you just go in and you basically get rid of it. And or you do this, which is sort of a half measure. Right. And what did Joe Man Manchin need? He needed the incentive. He needed something to go back and tell the people of West Virginia, this is what I've done. Now, I, I want to talk about the political ramifications of this because, listen, I, I've got this list here. It's, it's an incomplete list. We're talking about a gun safety bill that didn't go far enough, but it happened. We have the CHIPS bill, which we talked about, which was a major investment in, in industry and innovation. We've got, we had a veterans bill that just got passed. We had infrastructure. We've now had a climate change and a, and a tax change. And we'll talk more about the IRS in a second because we have to. That right now is a lot to sit there and crow about if you're the Democratic Party. I want to point this out. They can make the case at midterms, but it doesn't really move the needle all that much with people. If people are going in to vote, they want a bigger story, they want a bigger plan, they want a bigger mission. This you can go back and say this happened and maybe it'll move a couple of points, but on top of that, it has not gotten Biden out of his hole yet. The people that I'm still talking to within the Democratic Party still want Biden to step aside. There is still a lot of communication in all of this that the Democratic Party not only has to get past Nick, but one of the biggest things that the Democratic Party has trouble doing is explaining what they've done, why they've done it, and why it benefits people, and putting it in a larger story. And time will tell whether or not they're capable of doing that. Well, yeah, but you also don't let's not forget over half a million jobs created in July. Huge uptick in, the, in the, what they thought it was going to be. Uh, he killed Zawahiri. That, that's talking about pulling up a, a greatest hits of, uh, you know, way back an old card from the deck. Uh, you know, that, that's always one of those things that gets people riled up sometimes. These people who like the military shit. Uh, Kansas protected abortion, which, you know, you don't have to give credit to Biden necessarily. But they they definitely um, got involved in, in some of the messaging. So, uh, I mean, there's a lot of things that and Biden doesn't want to really take the credit for it. He seems willing to say, well, this is all, you know, the Congress doing it, which is fine. But uh, at some point when you get into those elections, you have to someone's got to take credit for it. and They got to make sure that they're getting the credit for it. So, uh, listen, it's all very um, it's all very encouraging uh, in terms of the accomplishments. Trump Trump didn't get half of these things, the, the amount of things done in four years, much less two. 
No, he basically ran on a bunch of uh, promises that he never planned to keep and which also turned into big giant grifts so his cronies could, you know, suck up as much money as they possibly could and, you know, basically tried to destroy representative government and all of the departments. In this, and I want to talk about a couple of the things that are going a little bit under the radar, including the the insulin thing here in a second. And by the way, uh, just a quick thumbs up to Kirsten Cinema, who uh, on the banking committee has gotten millions of dollars uh, from the financial sector, uh, had to step in at the last second and really represent the interest of you know the hedge funder hedge funders. That's that's good work. They needed somebody to stand up for them, Nick. I mean. I, I I don't know how much more obvious she can make it that she has bought and sold. It is incredible. But real fast, one of the things that we Wait, we, well, we hedge fund managers need to eat too, Jared. <laughs> that that's right. They they need to protect their eight to nine homes just as much as the rest <laughs> of us need to have some food on the table. Really, really huge thing in all of this is the eighty billion dollars towards the IRS. And I want to point out why that's so big, which is. And I want to go ahead and say, I don't like the IRS. You don't like the IRS. Nobody listening to this likes the IRS unless maybe they they work for them or maybe a loved one works for them. It is a really, really unlikable organization. Okay. Mm -hmm. The IRS has been intentionally depleted and starved for years. And the reason that this has happened is Number one, in order to make sure that large corporations and the wealthy are not going to pay their fair share. And why is that? Because in order to go after those corporations and the wealthy, you need big giant teams to go after them. You need people working around the clock on each individual case. And if you don't have those teams, Nick, who do you go after instead of the corporations and the wealthy? Me. The, I you. Got, they go after, I've gotten, I've dealt with the IRS more than Trump ever has probably. Absolutely. This $80 billion was absolutely necessary to jumpstart the IRS to not only make corporations and the wealthy pay their fair share of taxes, but also to go ahead and bring a through line of a story that we've been talking about for a while. The nations, the major nations of the world got together and said corporations have grown too large. They've outgrown the nation states that birthed them. We have to drag them back by doing a universal international 15 percent corporate tax. The only way that you can even start to pull back on concentrated wealth and power is to start actually taxing these people. That's how you break the fever. Yeah. And this $80 billion to the IRS, it's a drop in the bucket. It's not enough for what people need, but hopefully it's enough to prime the pump because the IRS is going to be the main engine, particularly under a democratic presidency or a democratic administration. It's going to be the main engine to getting them off your back, Nick's back particularly, and making sure that they go out and make, make sure that people pay their fair share. Well, I love it because I saw somebody on the GOP side talking about how, uh, you know, what the reaction to a tax like that, and everyone's taxes are going up, by the way, in case you didn't know, Jerry, this is what they say. And what, the reason what they're trying to, you know, connect is that with that tax uh, on, on big corporations, they're going to lower their employees' wages to cover that tax. Now, I will say things that won't happen for 200, Alex. I'll, I'll buy, I'll, that's what I'm going to ask for. Because nobody, no, no uh, workers suddenly get less money from their paychecks. When, you, know, you know what I mean? I don't, I don't, they, they quit before that happens, even in like lower paying jobs. 
So this, they, they continually use the boogeyman of higher taxes that will somehow will eliminate jobs and it'll, it'll, it'll uh, you know, lower your, your own wages. It's, it's nonsense. That does not happen. And yet people out there are going to probably listen to this and think, oh, this is bad. We can't have this. When, when you start to see the benefits of that kind of revenue and the billions of dollars it's going to, to rake in, if they can just get it passed, if they can just start working and everybody can start feeling that, that's that feeling that the Republicans are trying to tap into about, oh, do you, don't worry, our policies will really help Americans. This tax and this benefit that can happen for people is profound. And that's how we get to the point where, you know, ACA is popular, right? Like people got the taste of Obamacare. They realized, oh, this isn't so bad. This actually is helpful. Same thing here. Once we get in to get those um, uh, tax like this going, going and the revenue coming in, the people will see. It's just a question of will enough people see it? Will, are they willing to accept it and, and accept that that was a done by the, by the Democratic uh, controlled Congress? Then you can start to see maybe a little bit of a thaw uh, of where we're at uh, with our politics right now. And speaking of the Republican Party, um, one of the more detestable parts about this that isn't getting enough coverage is the fact that the Republican Party submarined a, uh, a addendum by uh, Senator here from Georgia, Raphael Warnock, mm -hmm. who attempted to cap the price of insulin to thirty five dollars a month. Um, real fast, Nick, do you know do you know how much it costs to manufacture insulin? Five bucks, something like that. It, anywhere from a couple of bucks to ten dollars at most. Do you know what it? Do you know what it sells for? Two fifty. It can be up to three hundred dollars. And listen, it, it, the, the the problem with diabetes in this country is 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 its own epidemic that absolutely needs to be dealt with. This is a public health crisis, and and the fact that these companies have absolutely just run roughshod over people. It's a it's a ugly, ugly crime. And, and it, it's just terrible. This bill should have been passed for the good of people. But of course, the Republican Party stood in the way because they are not interested in using government to make people's lives better. The only thing that they want to do is use government again to get rid of impediment to profit and wealth by the, by the wealthy and also to go ahead and destroy government power and oversight. And how do they get away with it? They get away with it. And by the way, Nick, we're 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 older gentlemen at this point. I mean, this job has aged us, correct? Hey, speak for yourself, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> there's hey, listen. There's a little bit more white in both of our beards than there were when we started this podcast. Yes, that's true. You were probably old enough to remember when Marco Rubio, the senator from Florida, was considered the reasonable Republican, correct? Yeah, I mean, the water drinking, uh, sipping uh, senator from Florida, I guess so. What an incredible moment in American political history, by the way, to watch a person destroy their entire political future because they were thirsty. Incredible. You're not, you're not wrong, right? Like, no. I mean, no. he, he's, I think he, since then he's won another senatorial race, I think, right? I don't know how the, the years. Yes, down, he but. has. But in real time, you didn't have to be a, a political <laughs> analyst to understand that he ruined his career because he looked weird on camera getting a bottle of water. Yeah. Marco Rubio was considered the moderate Republican, the future of the Republican Party as it moved away from white supremacy and, and the politics of fear. Marco Rubio, um, by the way, showed his true colors over, over the course of this vote, comes out, by the way, and, and this is an actual tweet from Marco Rubio, and we need to unpack this. The Democrats just blocked my effort to try and force Soros-backed prosecutors to put dangerous criminals in jail. Um, Nick, real fast, who's uh, Soros referring to? The Jews. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, just, and, and basically... 
general. Yeah, to go ahead and, and, and spell it out for people, and I'm sorry, Nick, for you and your people, um, this is the idea that literally Jews are, are using their money, their wealth, and their influence to put in place prosecutors who, Nick, they just don't prosecute criminals anymore because they want criminals to keep people in fear and go out and ruin communities. This is Marco Rubio hiding the fact that he has no answers for anything, he has no desire to do anything, including helping Americans pay for affordable insulin and, and basically making sure that poor Americans are going to die. All he has to offer is a absolutely blatant anti-Semitic conspiracy theory. It is the ethos and foundation of the entire party at this point. It's no longer the fringe. It gets worse, Jared. That's not only why it's horrible. Why it's horrible is because there's only been one story in the news relating to Florida and prosecutors not prosecuting cases in recent memory. And that case is what DeSantis just did by suspending one of the attorney generals who says he's not going to prosecute uh, for, you know, uh, people who uh, parents who have transgender kids who want to have care, basically. And there's a couple other things that are LGBTQ related as well. Um, and abortion. And yeah. abortion. Now, and it turns out that he's not even violating the law. The law is in, in Florida is on his side as far as what he wants to prosecute, what's still what's still legal in that state. So that's what he's also signaling, as far as I can tell. And um, and that's that's just what they do now. There, it's a party of outrage and fear and anger and uh, and culture wars. And you know, at some point, it's going to burn out. But that that really was what struck me because it's like, what, where did he get that? Out, where did that come from? Out of the blue, about you know, uh, you know, prosecutors who won't prosecute. Of course, they prosecute. They, they they're putting bad guys behind bars all the time. And and it's not like you know. So this is what he's signaling. Uh, and he is awful. He needs to go. And he's just a terrible politician as it is anyway. It's, it's really amazing to watch all the people who are considered sensible, reasonable Republicans just dive headfirst into this filth. And they reveal themselves. It's like you always say, the mask slips. And, and sometimes you have to look at it and say, thank God the mask slips so we can stop, you know, with this terrible storytelling that this party has reasonable people in it. If you put an R next to your name at a national level at this point, you are making it very clear that you're okay with this. You just reminded me, I, I watched a Nikki Haley soundbite recently. God damn it. Like, and she was also just as outrageously anti-homophobic uh, as well. Um, and again, it's it's calculated. And you can tell it's calculated. They've, they've, they've workshopped their soundbites. They've workshopped their, their, their tweets. Um, you know, it really is uh, astounding. The, the, the party of freedom, uh, you know, is really all, anything but. And, and I want to say this because, you know, again, Nick, we, we are not afraid on this show to criticize the Democrats when they deserve it, which is often. Yeah. Um, this bill doesn't go far enough for me. This doesn't align necessarily with my principles. But I have to tell you, it shows that at least the Democratic Party can pull levers and move things around in order to try. I don't always agree with how they do it. I don't always agree with the route that they go in. They at least try to make people's lives better, and they try and address the crises and the problems of the moment. The Republican Party has no interest in that. 
None yeah. whatsoever. And you could not make this clear. You cannot keep making the argument in the media, in the political circles, all of it. You cannot make the argument that these two parties are even on a similar plane. Yeah, someone came up, came at me on Twitter yesterday for that, and I was just like, no, no, no. You have to at least be able to admit that one party has their heart in the right place, and they're trying, and the other party is, is a um, seditionist, uh, uh, what's it call it, uh, uh, obstructionist entity, uh, Borg, I guess we'll call it, and that and that's all they do. It really is, it is clear, you know, from any perspective, that these two parties are different. And that's the, that's the issue, I think, because I keep hearing the response on the right saying, they're all liars, they're all cheats, they're all corrupt. Why is Trump any different? He's not any different, he's just doing what everyone's been doing. That, and that's what's so, it's the cynical bullshit, the cop out of it. And that's, and, and if we, anything has been clear in the last couple of years, that it's, they're not the same anymore. And uh, most people should be ashamed. I mean, everyone should be ashamed if you're supporting the Republican Party at this point, right? They're, they're, shame should befall you, your house. Yeah, and it's it's a big it's a big effing deal. It just is a, a, a massive climate change bill. Um, you know, say say what you want about it. It's a victory. Savor your victories where you can. And while we're talking about that, listen, we're getting ready to have on Gal Beckerman, uh, the senior editor for Books at the Atlantic and author of The Quiet Before on the Unexpected Origins of Radical Ideas. Again, listen to this interview. This is a really really good look at how movements start how they gestate, how they grow, and how you can change moments that don't feel changeable. And I know that we felt that, we felt that things are intractable, that there's no opportunity for things to get better. This is how it happens. So here we are with Gal Becker. All right, everybody, as promised, uh, and I'm really, really excited about this. We are here talking with Gal Beckerman, who is the senior editor for books at The Atlantic and author of the Quiet Before on the Unexpected Origins of Radical Ideas. Uh, Gal, first of all, thanks for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. So, you know, I was telling you a little bit about this uh, before we started recording. Um, and I just want to tell the audience, I, I think that this is uh, a really, really impressive book and uh, a book of the times. And I, I I could not order this thing fast enough or ask you to come on the, pa- uh, the podcast fast enough because I, th- I think that this is... I think this is incredibly relevant, particularly right now uh, at, at this political and historical moment. Um, there are so many different conditions that are taking place that make people feel like nothing could possibly change, that we're at this sort of uh, uh, moment that has uh, no momentum towards something different. And on top of that, for reasons that I assume we'll talk about before this podcast is over, it feels almost impossible to build something or to start, you know, moving towards an epoch. Um, before we get into the, the 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 meat of this thing, I got to ask you, Gal, where did this book come from for you? Because I've been waiting on this book for forever. <laughs> and as soon as I started thinking, my God, somebody needs to write this book, I found it and I was so pumped about it. Where in your mind, what what was the space that created this? I think I think it was basically the confluence of sort of two things that happened around the same time around, you know, let's say 10 years, 10, 11 years ago, like end of 2009, beginning of 2010. And those things were um, that I finished writing my first book and my first book was looking at the world. Part of that book looked at the world of Soviet dissidents. So these are you know people living in a pretty oppressive authoritarian regime who are trying to fight it 
uh, searching for their freedoms, and they're doing it with this interesting communications tool, which is called Samizdat. Samizdat was underground writing uh, that was self-produced, -cr created, passed hand-to-hand, -hand, and it occurred to me and this wasn't really like a big part of the first book but it occurred to me you know the more i looked at it like the more uh, it served as this glue like glue for a sort of shadow civil society they were sort of enacting the values the things they cared about the things they wanted the things they were dreaming about imagining for the future in this underground way and what made it possible was the communications medium that it was great for that and, and, it, and it, this lasted for decades right um so there was that, I was sort of interested in that. At the same time, the Arab Spring happened. And the Arab Spring happened and there was this sort of triumphalism about social media and social media being the end all be all communications media that was going to make revolution possible for any group of people that wanted it uh, for any number of different causes, right? That turned out okay, right? That, that, <laughs> well, so it occurred to me almost, even when people were feeling really good about it, I was like, you know, I don't know. I don't think this is going to be it. Like we, you need more, you need a communications medium that has other features. So the, when I saw those revolutions kind of collapse, um, and you started hearing even the people that were excited, had been excited about the Twitter and Facebook's role in them suddenly kind of get their cold shower, you know, I, combined with thinking about Sami's that I was like, you know, we really need to look historically. Yeah. Uh, we need to sort of break through the, am the amnesia of this moment that's come after the internet came into our lives mm -hmm. and, and maybe draw a line between forms of communication, moments of inception, uh, you know, radical ideas sort of coming together uh, back in that pre-digital era and now. And maybe there's some interesting sort of differences and similarities that could be interesting for us to consider. Yeah, you know, I, I talk all the time, I think uh, there's a real danger in, in what we could call conventional history, right? Like when we talk about revolutions or we talk about revolutionary moments, they're sort of treated as if, I don't know, there was an instantaneous like inspiration that suddenly floods out from, I, I don't know, some supernatural fount or something. Right. And what we do is a real, it's a real disservice to organization and the spreading of ideas and building of communities and building trust and, and, and foundations of things. Can you talk a little bit about what actually, what are the components that lead to these major yeah. changes? Like what's underneath the surface there? You, you're, you're absolutely right. You know, that we sometimes we look historically and we see like the leader or we see the moment of final triumph. And what we don't understand is in many of these situations, certainly the, the cases or examples or stories that I looked at, these are world changing ideas. These are ideas like, you know, my, this first chapter I have about the Republic of Letters and the scientific revolution. It's changing your relationship to nature, to yep. truth. You know, or reality you, itself, yeah. reality itself, or think about, you know, the decision to have all working people have everyone actually have real democracy and have the right to vote. Right. That it shouldn't just be like an upper crust of people who, who get to make decisions in the country or women have the right to vote or the ending of slavery or, you know, or, or even think about, you know, in our times, uh, you know, people who want to come up with new ways of challenging, you know, the ideas of climate change, presenting them, you know, to the world. Um, there, there are so many, these are, what makes these ideas radical is the fact that it demands a completely different frame of reference, a changing of perspective. And to make that happen, 
you, you need more than just a single protest, even a very large one, <laughs> or, or a certainly a, a charismatic leader. You need people to actually change in the way they think. And so what, what I really found looking historically is that what that demands, first of all, is a space for a small group of people, you know, who first sort of have these ideas to actually, and I use the word incubate in the book. I don't love incubate because it makes me think of like Silicon Valley and, 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 and like jargony, you know, language there. But, but, incub but incubate is a good word because you need like a, a, a like a warm, intense, uh, you know, focused place where people can sort of gather together and begin to sort of hash out these ideas, which might seem like ridiculous ideas at first, giving women the right to vote seemed like a ridiculous idea to people at first, you know? So, um, the, but you need that space. You need that space for those ideas to develop before they can begin to, to disseminate out into the world. Yeah, and, and just to go ahead and, and, and make it very clear, I mean, you know, the, one of the things that's happening in this book and in this conversation we're having, we're talking about the, we're talking about history, but we're also talking about the present moment, right? We're trying yeah, to from and see what's yeah. happening. And so I, I think right now, one of the reasons why this book, I think, is so important, but also why people want to talk about this is there is a feeling, um, you know, not not necessarily that that history ended, you know, thanks, Fukuyama, but the idea that like forces have come into play and there is an inevitable uh, reactionary regression that's taking place that we aren't going to be able to get through. Um, a lot of the technology we're talking about can be used for good, but can also be very, very oppressive. And in all of this, I, I don't know how you felt about it. When I was writing uh, the, the book of mine, the, the newest one, when I found the Republic of Letters, I was weirdly like, I felt so optimistic mm. because because to look at and, and to go ahead and uh, I'm hoping you can sort of define it a little bit and boil it down mm. for listeners what the Republic is. But the, these are people who were in one of the most oppressive environments imaginable where, you know, uh, mysticism completely hid reality, scientific understanding. And to speak out of that orthodox could lead to death, banishment, you name it. And through that, and I was shocked, but it was like, you look at something like the founding of America or the American Revolution, and it's got its own problems, but it was built on the, that organization and that communication. And to be able to create something like that to get out of one of the most oppressive things in history, I, I, I found it really uh, comforting. I don't know how you felt about it. Yeah, no, I I did too. So the Republic of Letters, for listeners who who don't know, um, was this network of I mean, it was probably no more than a few hundred people at any given moment. Uh, mostly, um, you know, people who had had quite a bit of education uh, living at the time, probably st starting right around the end of or the middle of the Renaissance and going until the Enlightenment period, it lasted for hundreds of years actually, um, and it was a network of. Of, of people who were writing letters to each other. It all existed through letter writing, and they were each carrying out experiments, we would call them today, trying to test the bounds of knowledge of the natural world, mostly. And they, they were not, there was no specialization like we have now. You know, some people were doing what we would call astronomy, doing what we would call geology, you know, uh, biology, you know, chemistry. They were, they were, they, they did not take any truths, which were mostly the truths of the church at the time, 
for granted. Um, they wanted to test and question everything. And the significant thing to me is they did it together. Yep. They did it together in what is was really sort of an iterative process, meaning, you know, somebody would gather some data and something and they would send a letter and then some a third person would sort of copy that letter out and send it to a fourth person because they had also sort of been mucking around in the same kind of territory. And and, and, and they understood that what they were doing was not going to sort of arrive at truth right away, that it was a process. And that's, I mean, that's another theme in my book in terms of all of these chapters. It's all about a, a focus on process, you know, on, 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 on things sometimes taking time and knowledge building slowly. And so the, the Republic of Letters is a great example of that. And you're right that they were doing this at a time where people were literally being burned at the stake, <laughs> you know, or somebody like Galileo, who was, you know, one of the most famous people in the particular period that I'm writing about was, you know, had to get down on his knees and, 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 and say that everything that he believed was not true and then was put in house arrest. Um, because he was writing books. That's why my focus is, is, you know, as you've seen very often on the communication medium, because I think it shapes the intellectual environment that, 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 that you're in. And so having this, having letters, having a place of discourse and conversation, I think that's what probably felt hopeful to you. It's what feels hopeful to me when I read it is that it, this is, it's, it's, it's people talking in a deliberative, slow, progressive way. Yeah, and, and that brings us to the Chartist. And, you know, I, I thought that yeah. this section, there, there's a lot to learn from the Chartist, I think. And and this is a group, of course, that was pushing for uh, a more democratic system and was being met with violence left and right. And I think one of the lessons I, I learned from the chapter on, on the Chartist that I think is really important for modern people to think about is if you are going to change the world, you might not see the change. And that's a really mm. important thing is I think in modern times, we kind of want, I don't know, almost like a consumer based idea where I want the change and I want it now and I need it fast. But any mm. actual world shaking, world changing idea, you have to have faith that maybe I won't see the promised land but maybe somebody will. And it feels like the Chartists are a really good example of that. Yeah, absolutely. I think they understood, you know, the magnitude of what they were trying to do. It was the most, it was, I mean, please think of something more threatening to a political institution that's based on a small group of people having power saying all of these, you know, this proletariat, you know, who is working away. And, you know, at the time, this is the 1830s industrialization has really hit in a big way. People's lives are pretty miserable and they have literally, they have no recourse, no electoral recourse for saying, you know, you should shorten the work week or put in place certain conditions, you know, for factories, nothing. They, they don't have the right to vote. So um, it was an incredibly challenging thing that they were asking for. And I think they knew that it was not something that was going to happen. And you know, maybe in their lifetime, but it, it, this notion of a relay race, which was another metaphor that felt yeah. uh, very sort of apt to me. Um, the problem today is like we, I think you're right, you know, we we are so um, conditioned to want, you know, like immediate emotional gratification for the things that we feel strongly about, you know, and um, and 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 it, I think that it really distracts us because we, we there are Again, the communication, there are these communications medium that allow you to, say, gather an enormous crowd of people in the street or come up with a three-word slogan that is actually 
going to feel very emotionally resonant and satisfying to people, maybe because there's a lot of truth to it, something yeah. like Black Lives Matter, you know, but, but then, you know, what is the actual realization of the ideas and the, and the, and the objectives and the goals and the hopes that are behind something like that? Where does that happen? Because it doesn't happen on Twitter and it doesn't happen from just feeling a sense of righteousness about your cause. Um, and so that's what I, that's the book very much came out of this sense that, you know, when, when we're too dependent on that sort of immediate stimulus, um, we're losing something. Yeah. And I think it's, and, and this is a hard truth. And, and, you know, whenever we're, we're talking about this stuff, like, I think there is so much money and, and influence to be made in sort of selling easy answers, you know, mm -hmm. like just, you know, like sit back and watch. Things are fine. That the plan is in play. I mean, there's a reason why QAnon is so popular. You know, right, right, right. And the hard answer on this is anything that actually changes the world. I I feel like oftentimes is again incubated in communal strife and struggle and suffering. I mean, the Chartists is a group that are totally oppressed they're they're put down you know every time they keep coming back and i i love the idea of the petition <laughs> you know yeah, you're yeah, constantly bringing yeah, a petition yeah, yeah. expecting to be destroyed but that communal suffering mm -hmm. while awful and detestable actually goes ahead and forges the bonds that are necessary yeah. to, to create this change yeah no i was i was just gonna say that that you know there's something the petition is important isn't isn't just important as sort of a, a way of signaling to authorities, look how many people, you know, and they, they got, you know, the first petition was like 1.3, the next petition was like 2.5, you know, look how many people believe in this. It's, it's not just that. It's also the work that goes into the petition, because this is not a petition as we think of, you know, where you click on something online. People had to draw it up themselves. They had to go into town, sneak onto factory floors, set up in marketplaces. And then there's the act of convincing. They're sitting, you know, two people, an intimate moment of saying like, look, I know that your life is not great. You know, we should be able to do something about this. Oh, but I'm afraid. I don't want to sign, you know, like I'm going to get in trouble. You know, no, look at, you know, it's, it's, it's a, it's a conversation that leads from sort of an oral a moment of orality, you know, to a moment of actually writing your name. And these are people who are just becoming literate too. So yep. there is something fascinating about this moment, you know, where, uh, where that happens. But, but what I mean to say is that there's hard work and the hard work, which feels um, from the outside, like, ugh, how inefficient. You know, we could just have a petition like this. You could just put a petition online and you can get a million people in no time. That the hard work, the inefficiencies of it in some ways are so central to actually solidifying and, and creating bonds and creating identity around around a movement. Um, there's a great uh, sociologist, Zainab Tufekci, you know, who's, who's written a lot about social movement. She has a book called Twitter and Tear Gas. Um, and she talks a lot about this idea that social media is amazing because it, it allows you to go zero to 60, right? Like you can just have an idea, want to collect a group of people, and you, you get them on the streets. But what you're skipping over is really important. It's, it's what she calls the kind of internalities of a movement. It's those things that actually solidify a group of people and allow them to, to make it through those hard suffering moments. Um, it's, it's the like having to sit and like mimeograph 
you know, flyers and get people out <laughs> and organize the buses and all of that work, which is the grunt work, is is weirdly, you know, the key to to making people feel like they're deeply invested in in a movement that they're willing to to, to go great distances for. Yeah, and I want to. We're going to get to the big bad of the internet and social media and what all of that. Uh, yeah, the problems and the roadblocks and and the the opportunities. But before we do, I I got to tell you, and and for people who haven't read the book yet, um, there's a really good chapter on the riot girl phenomenon mm -hmm. and movement that I'm so glad that you put in there because I think it takes place at a very specific point and place that I think will will make it necessary uh, to talk about before we get to the internet. Which is, you know, we have this counterculture movement for anybody who doesn't know Riot Girl. This is uh, you, you can go ahead and sort of think also about, uh, you know, Nirvana. You can you, you can think about like the, this this uh, alternative artistic sort of anti-capitalistic uh, homogenized society movement in the 90s. And I, I wanted to point out that in this in this moment and in, in, in your chronicling of this, not only does the Riot Girl sort of feminist movement sort of have its own power, but there is a very bizarre thing that happens, which is it becomes commodified. Mm -hmm. it, it suddenly mm -hmm. starts to take a counterculture movement and starts to become absorbed into culture. And, you know, this is an interesting thing. I mean, Kurt Cobain more or less, you know, raged against this whole idea for years right. and years and years before killing himself. But it seems like uh, an interesting sort of takeaway from this is how a system that is being challenged can very easily start to absorb the challenge and sort of redirect the energy. Does that? Oh change? yeah, yeah, no, I think that's true, and that's that was why that story was so important mm. for me to tell because the riot girls. So this is like, you know, I, I see them as sort of the not just me, but other people see them as like the precursors to the third wave feminism. You know, so feminism that is based very much in sort of personal experience and trauma um, and the experience of, of patriarchy and, you know, and, and, and trying to create a space for women to talk about their own concerns um, and their own lives uh, uh, and the experiences that they've had. And this started with these young girls who sort of created their own magazines, right? They created zines, which are like, you know, uh, Xerox stapled together, um, homemade, uh, you know, magazines that they would share and swap with one another. And this community, much like the letters and the Republic of Letters, yep. the community was built through the exchange of these scenes, which all, were all like very diaristic, very personal. Um, but what happened, and, and, they, and they largely created them because they felt that those concerns that they had, you know, writing about body image or eating disorders or sexual assault or, you know, the way that they were seeing girls women represented in magazines was just not appearing in any mainstream media right so the things that actually mattered to them uh, was not appearing in any mainstream media so they said we're going to make our own media we're going to make these zines that matter to us and and that and so this movement this kind of burgeoning movement is built around that and then what happens exactly what you said suddenly they're seen as kind of cool right so the like nirvana happens this whole like kind of grunge rock moment happens and in like a magazine like Cosmo, which had been like the their target, you know, the reason why they decided to create their own zines, suddenly there's like how to dress like a riot girl and, you know, uh, the, the addresses of zines that you can order for. And it immediately eroded 
and sort of, you know, it, it, they lost their space. They lost their sort of independent space because it was starting to take on a kind of a political edge too. You know, this was a moment of the beginning to sort of like uh, um, um, rewind some of the, the, uh, the you know, Roe Ro versus Wade and sort of a, a abortion uh, rights that had been won. And so the, these, these young women were starting to sort of take these ideas and turn them into like a political spearhead, but they never really got a chance to because, you know, before they knew it, they become sort of a phenomenon that they lost control over. And so that chapter is actually called Control. Because like, because the ability to control the medium that you're using and sort of the conversations you're having on that medium, I think are, are pretty important um, to, to, to the development of an idea. Well, I mean, speaking of mediums, um, so jumping forward into social media, and, and this is something, it, it took me a long time to sort of start to wrap my head around because, you know, it's something like, a, like Twitter. Twitter is just a very nice interface. It's very slick. And it feels like if you just if you just word the right 280 character yeah. tweet, gal, you're gonna set the world on fire. And it's done, yeah. right? If you just yeah. go viral yeah. enough. Yeah. And then yeah. suddenly suddenly when you look at it long enough, you realize it's a pinball machine. Oh, totally. it doesn't matter how high the numbers go, it doesn't matter how viral a tweet goes. And then when you start thinking about it further, the way I think about it is it's almost like a scream jar. And you can take all of your frustration, you can take all of your uh, disillusionment with, with the system, the energy that you have to change the world, and you're just sort of putting it in this thing that commodifies it, right? And, and sort of like isolates it almost. And I thought the, the book really did a, a, a fantastic job of talking about this difference in medium and how it has changed the the revolutionary energy and how it works and how it can be dissipated or how it can be commodified. Can you talk more about that? Yeah, of course. I mean, I so I I have I put a lot of stock in uh, in these sort of mid-century media scholars like you know Marshall McLuhan is probably the one of the best known. Neil Postman is a guy that came after him wrote a lot about television. A great, great book called "Amusing Ourselves to Death." I read that uh, again this summer. It hits uh, different now. It's yeah, yeah, yeah. But but I think the bigger idea there, and he's borrowing this from McLuhan, is this notion that. The, whatever medium we use, whatever becomes the dominant medium at a particular moment. So it doesn't, you don't have to be on Twitter for this to be true of our yeah. society at large. But if Twitter and Facebook and social media and its sort of impulses, its metabolism is another word that I use in the book, you know, if that shapes the culture, shapes our politics, shapes society, then we have to look at that medium and sort of what it allows us to do, what it wants us to do, what it doesn't want us to do, uh, its limitations. So for Postman, that was television. And he said, oh, here's this medium that's become, it's all about image. It's all about entertainment. And so our politics have become entertainment. Our culture has like lost this like depth. It's becomes like surface, you know? So when we look at something like Twitter and the impulse of Twitter, you know, like what, what, what we as, and I'm on there too, you know, like what, what, what it wants us to do. It wants us to have these very attention grabbing, emotionally provoking, short, uh, you know, uh, statements that, that are going to sort of um, get us the kind of attention that we want right on there. And so if that becomes the speech act that you're sort of building yourself around, then, then it has sort of wide implications. Um, really wide implications. Um, and and when we compare it to something like the letter or something like 
what we just talked about, those moments when you'd have to go get a petition signed and you'd have to engage in a conversation. When we compare it to those forms of communication, then it's it's a it's it it's it really makes a big difference. Yeah, it does. And it feels like okay, and so on one hand, I think Twitter also the reason it benefits is the lack of space to talk about things means that miscommunication is constant, right? You're not able to say everything that you necessarily want to say, or you didn't say all of what you needed to say. And there's always a reason to sort of go after one another. And it feels, it's funny, I was reading all these histories of like, uh, you know, the Internationale before, you know, uh, World War One, and like watching basically movements split. There, It's constant arguing infighting yeah. oh you're not here you're not there it feels like baked into the system is sort of a self-destructive almost impulse to keep people from being able to get on the same page in order to come together and movements of solidarity it feels like it can create things like the arab spring or even push things like blm but it does also feel like it inherently as a medium is almost antithetical to the idea of coalition building yeah, no, I mean, I, I mean, this, for me, the shorthand is like it just it feels like something that's built to like destroy things and not to yeah. not to or, or created to, to destroy things and not to build build them up. And the Arab Spring is a perfect example because those are people who, you know, to to take down the dictator, to sort of all get united around a single, you know, emotionally resonant moment. You know, um, of let's go out in the street, let's do this, raise your fist in the air, like. It was perfect for that, right? But then, what what did it, it? What purpose did it need to serve after? What it needed to do was to get people aligned. You know, you had this the coalition that came together to take down the dictator was like an odd coalition. It was like you had like Islamists and you had like communists and and you know they there were probably points of convergence. But as soon as they got online to try and do this to try to build themselves into a political opposition that could contend for power um, against forces like in Egypt, you know, the Muslim Brotherhood, the military, they, they were, it was like the game was over before they even started. You know, they just started like fighting each other and going down these like yeah. purity spirals, you know, of like who's more committed to the revolution. And I mean, we know it's not hard to imagine, you know, what that looks like online. You know, it's, um, so I think that's true. I guess the question to ask, like, you know, why is it built to, to destroy and tear down? Um, is that just more like fascinating for us because look, the ultimate the ultimate imperative of it's a private are private companies, right? They want us to stay on as long as possible. So, yeah. so like there has to be there's something about that uh, construction, you know, that that is beneficial to us just staying glued, you know, like wanting to know or something deeply human about, you know, we all want to gossip about each other. We all want to know what the dirt is. We know, you know, we know we, we want to see sit there like and eating the popcorn, you know, while somebody's taken down, you know, like th those are things that that are deep human impulses probably from long, long ago in our sort of <laughs> in human society, you know, and it's just, just like capitalizes off of that in this incredible way. But what it's really not good for is I you know, very much found was just um, building and finding convergence and, 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 and having the bravery to say, hey, what about this idea? Like, I know it's a little crazy, but like, you know, maybe there's a different way for us to think about how like policing should work in America. Like, here's my, here's my, here's my suggestion, you know, like, it's just not good for that. Like, it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't work. Um, so yeah. 
One of my concerns, and and from my own observations and research, one of my biggest concerns, and and I think you touched on it in a very excellent way in this book, is that we do live in this moment where most people feel stuck. Most people feel like there's no opportunity to change anything. And, and that is particularly among liberal populations, leftist populations, you name it. There's one population that doesn't believe that, and that is the right. And they have been working very, very hard to not just build coalitions and build uh, a political project. But one of the things that I think that they have a, a huge head start on is imagining a different world. Yeah. I mean, they they have been coming together uh, for so long now, imagining a post-liberal world, a liberal world, whatever you want to call it at this point, which is more or less rolling back the time back to when you needed a republic of letters, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um I was wondering, based on your research and and after writing this book, do you feel like that quote unquote incubation to to move you know to to use the term you were talking about? Do you feel like that that head start is too much to overcome, or or do you remain hopeful that there is an alternative that that can be down the road here? No, I I do remain hopeful, and I think weirdly, you know, we need to look to the right as an example. I agree. Um, that's why I have a, a chapter on on Charlottesville and the lead up to Charlottesville because th- look, the thing about the right in this country is they understand themselves to be a insurgency. Yes. They understand that their ideas are not accepted by the majority, and so when you start with that as your from the outset you think differently about how to achieve the things you want to achieve. You allow yourself to like to to imagine a little bit and to to crawl off into your corner so that you can strategize because you know what they they always talk about opening up the Overton window, you know, the 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 the, the realm of what's possible. And they need to do that because they know that their ideas are not widely accepted. And so um so some of the things that I suggest throughout the book, you know, make sense for, you know, for people who have radical ideas they're doing you know they are saying we're not going to have our conversations on these big public platforms we're going to go and we're going to find quiet secluded spots to do it and we're going to think about things like optics you know i this is what was fascinating when i when i went into that uh you know as i got the chat room records of this uh of the groups that were coming together around charlottesville uh to do the protests in charlottesville um uh uh, unite the right you know which was a bunch of white supremacist groups who who had to actually find a way to unite like there are divisions among white supremacists some of them hate jews more some of them hate jews a tiny bit less you know like they you know there's some of them want to send black people back to africa and some people want to put them in prison you know like there's there 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 are i mean i'm being a little facetious but they but it's but there are real divisions and they needed to come together and they needed a place to do that. And so they had this closed chat room on a, on a, a platform called Discord, you know, that's mostly used by gamers um, that allowed them to create a closed room that they had mo- they moderated. They could decide who came in. They could kick people out. And they had these very intimate and interesting and focused conversations in there. And a lot of that was about optics, was about we understand that we look like a bunch of crazed neo-Nazis to the outside world, but we have a suspicion that there are other white people out there who might agree with us if we sort of toned it down or if we wore white shirts and khakis and left, you know, grandpa with his, you know, swastika tattoo on his forehead, like in the closet, you know, like if we, if, if let's think carefully and they would spend hours and hours like debating this stuff um, and sort of strategizing around it. And I had many moments where I was like, 
you know, this could be really useful for any number of groups of who have progressive ideas who go out into the world, you know, like people who believe in for in more gun control, for example, they go out into the world and they believe that the righteousness of what they think, yeah. that the moral rightness of it, if they just say it loudly enough, everyone is going to agree with them. And it's just not true. They need to think like an insurgency. They need to think yeah. like a group of people who believe in something that they have to convince you know, a, a lot more Americans to come along with before it will become inevitable that anything could get done. Yeah, and I think the right, and, and this is the thing that's frightened me the most, but I, I, I think you're exactly right. We have to learn from them because there is, before these big moments of change, it feels like nothing could possibly change. And we see yeah. that throughout history. And then suddenly everything changes. And it's right. the people who like who can imagine a difference. They get there and they're the ones who determine it. And I, I, I'll say, and I want to ask your opinion on this. I think one of the things going back to the, the idea of knowing that some people will think they're, you know, crazy loons or whatever. I think that people have to start being okay with maybe seeming ridiculous for thinking of alternatives and yeah. thinking about changes because just sitting there defending institutions that are kind of crumbling by the day and, 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 you know, are sort of like culminating into larger crises. Like it feels like you have to have, you have to have the bravery of imagination. And that was yeah. one of the things I came from, uh, from reading this book. So I was, I was hoping to finish this thing up. If you could talk to the listeners a little bit about how do you think, you can start to foment this kind of change? Like what, what can the individual do as a, not just in terms of coming together in solidarity and finding other people and forming organizations, but how do you start actually affecting or beginning the long, long road to change, would you say? Yeah, I mean, it's a big, hard question, yeah. you know, and um, if I knew the answer to that, you know, with with in an ironclad way, then I would... <laughs> be uh, in a much different position. Um, I, look, I think that what you're getting, what you're beginning to get at is right. You need to give yourself, people need to give themselves the freedom to imagine different sorts of realities. And that seems to me the very first step. Um, but it's not so obvious that we live in a society where we feel comfortable doing yeah. that, right? Um, I mean, shame plays this you know, extraordinary role on those platforms, right? So um, if, those, if that's where we're communicating, if that's our public square, then we're already, you know, we're not in a great place to be saying, hey, what about this? You know, because y you're, you're, you're terrified um, to talk. Well, so, that opens you up to judgment. It opens right. you up to judgment yeah. and yeah, and to and to being the whatever that whatever that day's you know punching bag is um, for everybody's entertainment. I mean that's that's kind of what it is, right? Um, so I think imagination. You're absolutely right. Is sort of the first thing. I think having a sense of patience about how long we alluded to this before, how long change actually takes. So it's both, and it sounds sort of contradictory to do these things at the same time, but having the imagination sort of imagine to, to think of big ways that society can change, big status quos that we've taken for granted uh, that maybe we shouldn't, um, you know, but also being comfortable with the incre with incrementalism to some extent was knowing that uh, change happens, you know, not, you, you kind of have to have your eye on the prize, but you also need to know that day to day, um, it might be a very local thing. You know, like if you, if you do have a 
just to take it, make it more concrete, if you do have a different vision for like how the police should function in America, that you think that, you know, not every municipality should give the entirety of its budget to its police department, but maybe some of that money should go to social services so that, you know, pressure is taken off of cops who have to report to, have to, to, to arrive at every single incident that happens. Maybe it should be given to social services. So, you know, this is a small, maybe wonky sounding thing, but, you know, it's, it, it's a big shift in the way that we, uh, the way we do things in America. So if that's what you believe, you both have to have this sort of big vision. Um, but then you also have to change who's who composes your city council and get together with people to elect different folks or uh you know run yourself or 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 find ways to uh make change that will not feel like world you know like you know the the, the it won't go viral necessarily right and 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 but but that actually are the steps that you need towards that those bigger goals Absolutely. And, and it builds. I mean, it turns into a conflagration. That's how it yeah. goes, right? Like you, you form trust, you form faith in one another, starting in small steps. And then the next thing you know, you have a lever that's changing the world. That, that is, that is that I'm historically, that is how it tends to work. <laughs> it doesn't always, it doesn't always succeed, but, but when it gets close, uh, even it, it tends to start that way. All right, everybody. Uh, I've been talking with Gal Beckerman, the author of The Quiet Before, on the unexpected origins of radical ideas. Absolutely essential reading. And congratulations on just a fantastic. Thank you so much. I, I really appreciate the, the enthusiasm for it. It means a yeah. lot. Gal, where can the good people find you? Uh, well, you can find me online. Um, I, <laughs> I'm waiting on you to say Twitter. I am just waiting on Twitter. After this um, you can find me on Twitter. I don't know how interesting I am a participant, but, uh, but, uh, you know, I have a website that has links to, you know, the book, uh, various places you could buy it. Um, and some of my writing, it's gullbeckerman.com. Um, and you know, I'm on all those other platforms as well. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for having me. All right, and we're back, and that was an interview with Gal Beckerman, again, the senior editor for Books at the Atlantic and the author of The Quiet Before on the Unexpected Origin of Radical Ideas. I just want to emphasize again, it can feel like nothing can change, that we're absolutely powerless and alone, and it turns out when we think that is the case, things can change very, very dramatically, very quickly. Yeah, language language ends up being important, and 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 also policy. Like like we said, over the course of time, look at like gay marriage and the support of that, for instance, is an aside. You know, it is now widely supported, even though it was really controversial at the time, and a lot of people didn't want it. After enough time, people can accept it, realize that it's fine, and move on. Just like we can say, you know, if the QAnon people. There are people that can kind of see the light and, and, and amend their ways and realize how foolish those things are and, 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 and you know, come to some more uh, rational line of thought. Well, and it's really interesting, the two examples you just brought up, like the, the um, civil rights movement within the gay community and also QAnon. This goes along with a lot of what Gal says, which is. These ideas, and, and both of them are very foreign to like the, the circumstances that they came forward to, right? If we're actually going to start like uh, analyzing this, you know, gay civil rights started in a time in America where to say you were gay, like you could either be thrown into jail, censored, oppressed, or literally murdered, mm -hmm. you know? Like that was a constant thing. 
QAnon, of course, starts off in a little subculture and gestates and grows. Now it's become the basic ideology of the Republican Party, if not in name, then in practice and belief. Meanwhile, the, the, the gay movement, along with all of these activists and all of these cultures, you talk about art, you talk about uh, subversive speech, the counterculture, all of these things, they can grow and you can look at them and say, oh, that'll never amount to anything or, you know, the status quo could never change. We make that mistake as people. We think that tomorrow will look like today. But I have to tell you, if, if you keep organizing, you keep building these communities, you keep working on this, you keep thinking about a different world. Some really amazing things are possible, but you have to you got to have faith in it. You just have to have faith. Absolutely. Yeah. And you got to fake it till you make it. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And, and, and I said this, you know, when, when I was talking with Gal. Nick, we might not see the change. You know what I mean? Like we, we're doing this, we're doing our part, our listeners are doing their part. We might not see the change. And, and that's frustrating and that's hard, but we have to keep, we have to keep fighting for the future in the hope that something will build and maybe the next generation will have it better. Maybe the generation after that will have it better. Maybe we will see it. Can I, but we, we have to have the faith that we can change things and, and over time that, that we can build a better world. Can, can I offer a, a basketball coaching analogy to this? I love or? it. Please offer a basketball coaching All right. Because, you know, if, if those of you guys don't know out there, I'm actually a basketball coach and I work individually with teams and players. So a lot of times I'll go up and I'm, shooting is my one of my specialties. So I, I'll, I'll be working with somebody and I just out of the blue, I say to them, are you a good shooter? And more often than not, they'll kind of shrug and be like, yeah, no, not really. And I said, how can you possibly become a good shooter if you don't even, if you can't say that you're a good shooter? Like, I don't know what you're going to get to eventually, but I can guarantee you, if you say to yourself out loud that you're not a good shooter, you are never going to be a good shooter. And I, and, and the power of that language, changing that thought process is really, it applies to everything and everyone, all facets of life. Well, and to go ahead and bring the through line through from what we've talked about today, you'll notice we, listen, we have talked about Joe Manchin for God, oh my God, how long now, you know? Mm -hmm. Never at any point where we're like, stop trying, right? right? It was about putting pressure on him, throw money at him, get the Joe Manchin Frog Fuck Institute off the ground. I don't know, do something. And the whole point is, I understand that things are hard right now. I understand authoritarianism is growing, but you cannot just swallow the black pill, say none of this is worth it. You can fight for things, but it has to begin with what you were saying. It's visualizing a difference. It's, mm -hmm. it's, it's visualizing, internalizing, and trying to make a difference that can grow as opposed to just throwing in the towel and saying nothing could possibly ever get done. And, and, and the hilarious part of all this is that this, this term, Manchin just changed his mind based on, the, on a sports analogy. Did you read this? Where he's like, you know, if I suddenly change my vote, it'll be like hitting a homer with two outs in the bottom of the ninth. And that is what got him to, to do it. Like, like the, how oh. inane is that? Nick, we made the joke about Larry Summers going and talking to Manchin and telling him that he, you know, had meddled with the forces of nature. Larry Summers went and said, guess what? The financial world is fine with this. The financial world wants this. And Joe, you can be a hero. Yeah. Yeah. And he's like, I'm on board. Where can I sign up? I want to be the hero. You know, by the way, he probably was pissed that cinema even got a little bit of a headline in the middle of all this to, to finish it all up. Oh, oh, absolutely. Joe Manchin's like staff was pissed that Larry Summers showed up in any of the coverage in this. Mm -hmm. But it, it more or less you go in and you say, don't you want to don't you want to be the guy who who saved the future? And Joe Manchin's <laughs> like, I kind of like the sound of that. Yeah. You know, that, that sounds pretty good. And, and it really is the 
the combination of these things and, and you, you look at it and again, cynicism and nihilism can set in, but you have to hold out faith that you can change the world because you can. Whatever it takes. Whatever it takes. All right, everybody. On that note, we will come back on Friday with our bonus Weekender episode. A reminder, if you haven't already, go to patreon.com slash podcast. Go there. Do it. Go there. Support the podcast. You're, if you do, you are the reason we don't have to run ads. You're the reason we remain editorially independent. You're the, you're, you're the reason that we do this, and we need your help. Go over to patreon.com slash podcast. We'll be back for the weekend or on Friday. If you need us before, then you can find Nick. Can you hear me, SMH? You can find me at JY Sexton. Be safe, everyone.